Hello, and welcome to Rocket's Accelerated Geek Conversation. I'm Simone de Rochefort, Senior Video Producer at Polygon, and I'm here today with Brianna Wu, Executive Director of Rebellion Pack, and Christina Warren, Senior Cloud Advocate at Microsoft. How are we doing on this freezing Tuesday evening? It's so freezing. cold. It's so cold. I love it. I'm living for it. <laughs> I was, it was 75 degrees in Florida last week. Oh, yeah. I come back and it's 39 in Boston. I forgot that oh. you had that life experience. Yes. I mean, honestly, I'm living for it. Uh, we have an exciting show for you today. We're going to be reflecting back on 20 years of Xbox. But first, we are going to have Nick Guy on uh, as representative of Wirecutters Union to talk about Wirecutters' efforts to get the New York Times uh, management to the bargaining table to figure out a fair contract for them. Uh, Time for a couple disclosures before we get into that. Obviously, as we're going to be talking about Xbox later, Christina works for Microsoft. Disclosure, she does not work on the Xbox team, but she does work for Microsoft. And Christina, what is your other conflict of interest Um, for tonight? My other conflict (laughs) of interest, yes, because that's that's the title of of today's episode, Christina's Conflicts of Interest. Um, I have been a a, a contractor for the New York Times company in the past. So that is, uh, they they have, um, I've... They've they paid they, you money for things. They paid me money, yes. So mm-hmm. I, w- I want to disclose that, and I'm thankful for that money. But uh, I, I want to disclose that uh, before we go into that, uh, into our first topic with Nick. All right, thank you so much. The musical transition. Da-da-da-da-da. For our first story of the day, I would like to welcome onto the show Nick Guy. Nick is a senior staff writer covering Apple and accessories at Wirecutter. He has been reviewing iPhones, iPads, and related tech since 2011, which is a math that I don't want to do. Oh, no, I'm doing it. It's like 20 years. Wait, 10 years? 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. (laughs) He stopped counting after he tested his 1,000th case. It is impossible for him not to mentally catalog any case he sees. He once had the bright idea also to build and burn down a room to test fireproof safes. (laughs) Uh, Super curious about how that went. But first, welcome to the show, Nick Guy. Thank you so much for having me. So the reason that you are on today is because this is a very pivotal week for the Wirecutter Union, which has been in bargaining with the New York Times for two years now. That bargaining has been dragging on. And at this moment, as we're recording on Tuesday, November 16th, union members are prepared to walk out during Black Friday week, which is, of course, the biggest shopping week of the year for publications like the New York Times, like Polygon. Um, so if the Times does not come to the table uh, and re-enter bargaining, the union employees are prepared to walk out. And apparently over 90 percent of union members have voted to authorize that work stoppage, which is a huge percentage, uh, according to Bloomberg. So I would just like to start off by asking uh, where are because this is the week before this might happen. I just want to check in and see where this process is right now. What is happening with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So at this point, we are still prepared to walk. Uh, We presented management with nine bargaining dates that we can meet between last Monday and next Monday to try to wrap up our contract. And they rejected all of them. Mm. Uh, So while we're trying to get this contract done, we can't do it alone. We need management at the table. And they've decided that preparing for Cyber Week without us is more important than 
finishing up the contracting and having us there. Mm-hmm. So, so who would be writing, who would be doing the work um, during Black Friday week, which historically, you know, um, Wirecutter obviously is really known for its, uh, you know, reviews and the fact that you, you guys test everything, but also finding deals and, and posting links to things that you've reviewed well. So I imagine that like every publication, and, and I used to, to work at a number of them, you know, uh, Black Friday, Saber Monday is huge, but I would especially imagine for a something like Wirecutter, where you have such, you know, big lists and, and such good SEO, who would be the people who would be creating those lists, looking for the deals, updating links if um, the entire Wirecutter team goes on strike? Yeah, unfortunately, that's going to fall to our middle management and to freelancers who we've worked with for years who are, you know, they're not part of our union and they're they're doing their job. Yeah. Uh, so it yeah, it falls to people who are really not involved in the fight. Um, and we wish it didn't, of course, but of course, uh, but that's how it is. Mm-hmm. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the importance of Black Friday uh, at an organization like Wirecutter and what that represents to the times, like in terms of traffic and bottom line and all that? Yeah, well, one thing I really do appreciate about Wirecutter is the real wall between business and ed- editorial. Mm-hmm. So I can't tell you exact numbers because I don't know them, and that's mm-hmm. intentional. Uh, but I do know that this time of the year is huge for us um, because we spend a lot of time and energy and thought into finding truly good deals for people that are not just, you know, this wasn't an ad, so I should buy it. Mm-hmm. but something that's actually worth buying. And, uh, you know, so so we see huge numbers over this weekend. And that's that's why we're doing this now. We know this is the most important time for the site and where our staff contributes literally hundreds of hours of overtime. Uh, and so we're we're ready to go. So I wanted to, you know, one of the things that always strikes me about Black Friday, I want to tell you a story about something I have in a drawer. And the thing I have in a drawer is a hat for my little Havanese uh, that that has (laughs) the same name as the show. Yes, because Wirecutter had a series of hilarious, hilarious tweets on Black Friday. I think it was two years ago where y'all were joking about this. And you're like, look, this is a hat. This is an Amazon deal. We do not recommend this hat. I bought two of them. (laughs) And, And I bought this hat for my dog. And it is adorable and terrible and low quality. But that is why it's so much fun to watch your Twitter account on these days. It is quality content. You guys have dropped literally the monitor I am looking at right now as I'm recording the show comes from your writing on this in a sharp way to tell me I've got a good deal. So I I just want to tell you, when I'm reading stories from your employees that are going viral, talking about how the New York Times doesn't pay some of the strongest writers on your site enough to get health insurance, and they're applying for artist grants to be able to get their kids insured, that it just absolutely breaks my heart because like, I don't work in media. I don't have a dog in this fight, but just looking at it from the outside, uh, it's very apparent to me 
how much talent y'all bring to the table. So you had a tweet on Wirecutter Union that stunned me, finding out that we are literally, is this true? You're talking about a $300,000 increase in the budget of your publication, which represents something like 0.06% of the billion dollars in cash that the New York Times has. Is, oh, is that accurate? It's even less than that. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it's 0. 0.026, Oh my God. Um, so yeah, so... Our contract is seeking minimums for the certain uh, bands we have. So different mm-hmm. titles are in different bands. We have four different bands. And we're seeking minimum salaries for each of those four bands. Right. And if management were to accept the proposal we have on the table right now with the minimums we have right now, it would add $300,000 to payroll in the first year, which is, I think, one of my colleagues in the Times newsroom pointed out about two newsroom employees. Yes. It's it's right. it's, it's a, crazy. a rounding error. Yeah, I was going to say how many people are are in your bargaining unit? Uh as of today we have 66 people. <laughs> okay. So so we're talking like like 300,000 divided by 66 like a very oh, small wait, I'm doing that math. <laughs> increase. It's like, it's like it's like what $2500? I think it's um, maybe 42 it's f- on average. 4500 I think. Yeah. Okay. According to calculator. Um, anyway, it's yeah, no, not I was a lot. Say, I, I did it in my head. So, so Christina's math was wrong clearly, but but not a lot of money. We're talking forty forty five hundred dollars, but 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 a lot of money for a lot of people. But I just mean not a lot of money in terms of like when you're a big organization and you're looking at um, salary stuff. Like that's not even inflation um, uh, for some newsroom staff. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know uh, that's. That's really chilling. And and what is what has been the pushback in terms of, of I guess maybe the, the the conversations? Like from your perspective of of being the the chair, what is the the Times' pushback been? Because um, you know, the Times has been unionized for decades and decades. Um, and and obviously the the parent company is gonna have some, you know, uh there's going to be some push pull always between management and those sorts of things, but it's not like this is a labor is is a new um, thing. What what has the pushback been in, in trying to get the contract ratified? Do you think? You know, it's really hard to know where what they're basing their numbers on. Uh, management has told us at the table that they compare to similar shops and competitors, and they do all this research to set these rates. And we've asked for that information. Uh, being unionized means you get to request information from the company, and they're obliged to provide it. If it has, if it will help with bargaining. So we've asked for this information and they've refused to provide it. And we actually filed an official unfair labor practice complaint with the NLRB against the Times because they won't give us this information. So we've done our own research. We know what comparable shops pay. And that's in line with what we're asking for. But we Mm -hmm. don't know what they're basing their numbers on. And they're just saying, trust us. But the numbers aren't where they need to be. Mm-hmm. It, it's really surprising. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but, you know, it seems like with many journalism outlets, a lot of reporting is a loss, meaning, you know, it's important for the community, but there's no direct payment coming in for 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 writing that article with what the wire cutter does. Like I'm just looking around my office. Uh, let's see, there's the monitor I bought from your <laughs> affiliate link, my mouse, my keyboard. Uh, let's see. I've got my coffee maker. That's from your affiliate link. I've got uh, my backup machine right here. 
that's from your affiliate link. My 3D printer is from your affiliate link. Y'all get a cut from that every single time. So I I mean, it just seems to me that Wirecutter must generate a, a substantial amount of money for the New York Times. Am I am I wrong about that? Yeah, you know, again, I don't have the exact numbers, but mm-hmm. I believe that's a very accurate statement we've mm-hmm. seen in financial reporting quarter after quarter that we're offsetting losses. We've mm-hmm. seen in the most recent quarterly report that we added 10,000 paying subscribers in our first uh, month of subscriptions wow. who are paying either $5 a month or $40 a year. So conservatively, that's $400,000 right there. Right. And that's just in subscriptions. Um, and this was something that the wire cutter introduced or the New York Times, I guess, introduced as part of the wire cutter um, uh, stuff. This was um, a, a few months ago, right? That the, the subscriptions started. That's right. Yeah, it's relatively recent. Um, so it's a uh, if you have the Times all in bundle, wire yeah. cutters included, or you can pay a la carte for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like industry wide, there's all uh, this is kind of an ongoing problem where guides writing and commerce writing is not seen as on par with with any other kind of reporting. But it does involve like certainly with my experience with this would only be in games guides writing. But there's a lot of work that goes into testing and researching uh, and then just the art of writing itself uh, in that. And it seems to be kind of the same with with the work that Wirecutter does, where it's seen as a a basic a, a service, but not on par with reporting the Times newsroom reporting. Does that sound fair? I think that does. And, you know, just to elaborate on that, we have a crew of experts Mm -hmm. who do these jobs. Um, You know, you can't just pick any reporter off the street to test a thousand iPhone cases or or build a fire room (laughs) or have the expertise to test TVs like our TV writer does. You know, a lot of the people who work for Wirecutter have experience in industries related to their beat whether they were a chef, whether they were in textiles, whatever it might be. And so we bring a really specialized skill set to this job. And, you know, we're not, to be frank, we're not asking for what the newsroom makes. People in the Times newsroom are fantastic at their jobs and they work so hard and they do a very different thing than we do. We understand that. But there's also a $43,000 delta in the median salary between the Times Newsroom and Wirecutter Union. And that's what we're trying to chip away at. Yeah, which which is which is remarkably that makes me feel sick to my stomach to know that there's that high of a delta for, for the median salary. And as you said, many of the people who write, you know, the people who work at Wirecutter, it's it's not, and, and I'm not trying to denigrate other sites who do this sorts of thing or people who do those sorts of work, but you actually test everything that you're doing. You've tested over a thousand cases. You have people, as you said, who are experts in what they do. Many people who were formerly, you know, gadget reviewers, people who go remarkably in depth because the whole principle of the wire cutter from when, you know, Brian founded it was, was the idea was that it was going to kind of be a more modern kind of consumer reports thing. And and that's why the New York Times bought it for what, $30 million? Is that how much the Times paid in, in 2016? Yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. So, you know, there it's not just that it's because you could, you could, like the Times could have bought any run of the mill, like aggregator, 
pulls a couple of reviews off of Amazon, throws something together in an affiliate link review site. That's a lot of review sites. And that's why the review market is broken. I think one of the things that makes Wirecutter good, and clearly the Times thing is good enough to even put behind a paywall, is that you do actually do the in-depth testing. And you do have that separation between editorial and the business side so that the people who are doing the testing are not influenced by any of the business decisions or cuts or or deals that people might get, which is not always the case. So, you know, I I feel like, yeah, I mean, you're you're doing it. It's a different skill set than what people in the newsroom are doing. But I personally can't conceive of it being a a $43,000 delta in in median salary. And when we were required, uh, how it was described to me by at least one person was, what would a review site that the New York Times made look like? And they realized it would look like Wirecutter. You know, we are the New York Times ideal of what a review site would be. Uh, And that's why we're here. And that's why, as of a few months ago, our work is on the front page of nytimes.com every single day. If you scroll down right below cooking, you'll see Wirecutter. You'll see three or four new guides on there every single day. Um, But we're being told that we're a different class. That's just crazy to me. I mean, you know, I, I think you are... You're similar to New York Times cooking in the sense that when I look at it, like if I'm trying to cook something and really, really make it good, something exotic, right? I I go to New York Times cooking. That's the first place I look because I know that recipe is going to be worth my time. You know, it's better than some random site on the internet. I know there's a certain amount of vetting that's going with that. And I just... I feel like it's not unreasonable for y'all to want to be paid like the professionals that you are. So when it when it comes to Black Friday this year, yeah, this is just what I'm doing. But I usually buy stuff from Wirecutter because certainly in the middle of a pandemic, I'm not going to go out to you know Target or whatever. <laughs> and I just don't feel comfortable supporting the site this year. Um, is that something that, I mean, is that a good idea for you guys? Like how can normal people like me that just love your work and want you get paid fairly, how can we support you? Yeah. So that's actually exactly what we're asking is if we're not able to reach a deal for our readers and supporters to boycott Wirecutter on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So we actually have a page at wirecutterunion.com where you can support us. It'll sign you up to be kept up to date on our progress. Mm -hmm. If we reach a contract, we'll let you know and then shop away. Um, But if we don't, then we are asking folks to boycott and not shop through Wirecutter on those days. So that link is going to be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you need the latest information, uh, you can click on that link uh, because obviously this will come out on Thursday. So hopefully things will have changed by then. If they haven't, the information will be there. Um, Yeah, I I think that that was when Vox unionized that was one of the most uh, difficult things to communicate was like when and when we when we did and when we didn't want people to boycott the site because we did a walkout but we did a walkout without a boycott and there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of people being like they're on strike and we were like no we're we're just it's we're doing a work stoppage it's a totally right. different thing and in our case we didn't have a um a, a quote unquote picket line but you guys do in this case and what you're asking is for people to 
not read wire cutter for that for Don't that week cross or for the Black Friday. Picket line. Yep. All right. Uh, any other any other uh, final thoughts on how people can support you and uh, <laughs> you know what's up with you? The importance of yeah. this. Yeah. Just keep an eye on Wire Cutter Union on Twitter. Uh, that's where we're sharing all of our information, and we appreciate all the support. Uh, we will say, I'll say that on behalf of the unit, we've really been heartened to see so many people sharing such strong emotions and opinions about Wirecutter throughout all of this and how much it makes a difference to their lives. So we really appreciate that. So please keep spreading the word. And hopefully, you know, by the time this does go out, we're able to get back to the table and reach a reach an agreement and everyone can shop through Wirecutter again. <laughs> um, but if not, we sincerely appreciate the support. Yeah. Well, I just want to say on a personal note, I think speaking for all three of us here, even if the New York Times doesn't see the value you bring, we do. And I think our listeners do too. And Thank you. I, I, I think you should be treated like the professional that you are. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. All right. Thank you so much, Nick, for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Nick Guy, everyone. And if you would like to uh, keep up with Wirecutter Union on Twitter, they are on Twitter as Wirecutter Union. It's very easy. That link will also be in the show notes. Um, And thank you so much to Nick Guy, of course, again, for coming on. Second story of the day, reflecting back on 20 years of Xbox. I think that's why I mistook 2011 for being 20 years ago when we were talking to Nick, because... (laughs) I've got 20 years on the brain. But on November 15th, 20 years ago, the Xbox became a part of our lives. And in that time, it has grown from a big, bulky Halo machine and the number one console for FPS players to a two online uh, multimedia entertainment center to a failed Wii competitor to currently... The best deal in video games coming from me, the person who is not an Xbox shill, at least not paid to be, but unfortunately it's the reality I find myself in. 20 years of Xbox. What do we think? I think, you know, this is this is so huge, y'all. Like, I, when you look at the state of game consoles today, I mean, the Xbox coming out... Uh, it, it really standardized this kind of x86 architecture across the entire industry. Like generally speaking, if you're on Steam, you know, PC, x86, uh, you know, PlayStation, x86, Xbox, x86, DirectX, like all these technologies and kind of the, the, the unification of all these tools, that started with Xbox. Uh, you know, this kind of portability between systems that really, I, I think we take it for granted today, but this was not the case of the video game industry back in the PS2 era, like having very comparable ports across generations. So, right. Um, not to mention yeah. online, right? Like, yeah, like you'd, you'd, had, you'd, you'd had, you know, um, the PlayStation, not the PlayStation, sorry, the Dreamcast famously shipped with a modem and you could get modem attachments for the, the PS2, but nothing like what you could do with Xbox and Xbox live launched, I think in 2002 Mm -hmm. um, and, and really brought to console gamers the first idea of at least over ethernet, the, the concept of, you know, being able to do actual competitive, you know, like gaming with your friends Um, Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. That was the first time they'd ever played online because obviously if you're a PC gamer, you had been doing that 
for years, but a lot of people aren't and and, and weren't. And, and at least at that time, console gaming was far bigger than PC gaming. And so I feel like when I look at Xbox Live, which obviously has morphed into Game Pass and, and other stuff, like that really, I think, set the standard uh, for what everybody else has followed. I mean, I think you could argue, and we love Nintendo here, but like Nintendo, I still feel like like Switch Online is not where oh, it's Xbox- so bad. <laughs> and I feel it's, it's not where Xbox Live was. 20 years ago. I'm not even like being yeah. that. 100%. I'm and not even 100%. that hyperbolic. We can't talk about online play without mentioning Halo, which yeah. was like the selling point the of the original feature. Xbox. Yeah. And just what a what a huge deal that has been like initially with Bungie um, and now no longer with Bungie. But that I think really like that that was the brand for so long. That's what really set Microsoft on its path of of developing games uh in in such a mainstream way uh, and that was just hand in hand with the original xbox i think people have forgotten like the history of halo like i remember back in you know 1999 you know i was just doing like graphical layout uh you know graphic design stuff for a living like reading graphics magazines and seeing like halo featurettes in there uh you know back when I mean, i'm 90 percent sure this started off as a, a pc game it was just in development hell it was in development hell it couldn't get out and it did not look the same and then you know, Xbox came out and, you know, Microsoft saw the potential in this and really made it this first person shooter that revolutionized like what we think of as a complete first person mm-hmm. shooter today, like the mm-hmm. online deathmatch components to it, the really thoughtful weapon design. You've got to realize back in 1999, that's not that far from like no one lives forever, right? <laughs> you know, like Duke Nukem, like you're really not a quake. Uh, all of those are fine shooters, but this insanely well balanced, like thoughtful weapon design and that kind of puzzle combat. Uh, you know, Xbox saw the potential there and pumped a ton of money into it. And I don't think they get credit for that. So there is a really great video from Kurt Indovina on GameSpot uh, that's exploring basically what would have happened if uh, Halo had originally come out on Mac, which is, I believe, what the plan <laughs> was, was, if I'm plan. not misremembering. Yes. Um, and I think it was, it was almost like an RTS. Uh, it was not a first person shooter. It was like top down and it just would have been, the reception would not have been the same. Like, even though strategy games were obviously like having a more of a moment at that time than they are now, maybe, um, it would not have done what Halo did for Microsoft and, uh, for, for the games industry as a whole. Polygon may or may not have a video coming out about that later this month but i can't talk about that because it doesn't exist yet please go watch kurt's video because it's really really good um i i think we also can't talk about xbox without talking about the huge huge cultural shift that's come with xbox game pass which essentially you know seven years ago did not exist in the huge form it does now where you know video games for so 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 long have been a you know cash down purchase of $60 there have been rental companies that have you know flown high and then crashed and burned there have been attempts at streaming games uh that have you know more or less dissipated and 
with uh, with Xbox One and more so now with Xbox Series X and S, Xbox is committed to this idea of a subscription service. Essentially, it, it, it we would say tongue in cheek a couple of years ago, I think th- even three years ago, like it, it might turn out to be the Netflix of games. And I think with the launch of the Series S and X, it fully has become that that saturated and like i'm not i'm not an xbox person i i have a i have an xbox one s that belongs to work that i have in my house um and i have a couple windows laptops here uh that i also have for work and this year when i started you know exploring games for game of the year i was shocked to find that actually basically all of the games i want to play are available through game pass which I yeah. also, again, work subscription to Game Pass. Um, but that is an incredibly affordable subscription service. And you're getting all of Microsoft's games day one, which is something that they started doing with Sea of Thieves, which was like the first true rare game from beloved studio Rare uh, in years and years. The makers of, uh, of, of oh my God, the pirate, the other game. <laughs> Tell me what the game was that they made that was really, really good. How Banjo Kazooie. Banjo Kazooie. Uh, <laughs> Thank that's you. That's one Goldeneye, um, uh, Wave Racer, uh, like wa- Wave Race rather. Uh, like they made all the good Nintendo sixty four games, yep. and then Microsoft bought the studio. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Perfect Dark. Um, but yeah, uh, Conquer's Bad Fur Day. Many, mm-hmm. many, many games. Yeah. And that was made free for subscribers day one with Game Pass, which was the first like big experiment in that space. And now it's freaking Halo Infinite again uh, that everyone is downloading today and yesterday, which is wild. So just to tell all of you uh, a story about what happened, uh, a few a few years ago, uh, I had a debut party for uh, a book I put out uh, with a bunch of other women in tech. Uh, it was called Women in Tech. And uh, one of the people that was on the original Xbox team, uh, Stephen Toulouse, very generously uh, came to that particular event um, and introduced us and emceed the entire night. He was a, a perfectly nice guy. And I I knew his work very well from the original Xbox team. He was on the original podcast with Major Nelson, and he was very instrumental in setting a lot of the policies uh, with the uh, original Xbox and uh, harassment enforcement. We actually had never had you know, gamers together online before. So he was part of this team at Microsoft that started figuring it all out. After the event, we, we all went out to a bar together. He started telling me stories about uh, trying to uh, get Microsoft to basically put down some hard rules about harassment uh, in the very first early days of Xbox. Um, so what happened originally when he was in charge of the Xbox Live Enforcement Division, uh, they would, these are the most awesome forums. You could, you would get banned for using like a racial epithet and then they would put the video out online and you would watch it and they would appeal and everyone could go to this forum (laughs) and see people committing the crime. And his opinion was like, look, one strike, you're out, that's it boom, you're done. 
Um, so what was so funny, well, what was tragic is Microsoft, as soon as uh, we moved from the Xbox One era to the Xbox 360 era, a lot of people started doing that. And they started automating those reports. And they came up with these automated systems to like, make all the harassers play together, make all the cheaters play together, which kind of sounds like a, it's funny, right? Mm. But it's not because you're kind of putting all the most toxic people in a group together uh, (laughs) where it kind of becomes normalized. So as much as I love Xbox and appreciate that, that, um, you know, that legacy, I, I do think that they, like he actually ended up leaving uh, Xbox because of this, um, so I think that that is a very mixed legacy in how they chose to like grow their online uh, component of their business. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And and I think that yeah, it, it's hard because they were early, but I think as you said, like they had some of those things that were the right things in place, and then it is that that um, difficult thing of that a lot of companies face, which is what do you prioritize? You know, growth over um, making making things nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, well, what do we think is next? Can we even predict what's, what comes next for the next 20 years of Xbox? Also, what happens if Phil Spencer leaves? (laughs) Don't even say that. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I don't even know. Um, I mean, look, obviously I have like, um, I I don't work at Xbox, but I I work at Microsoft. I, I feel like Game Pass is the, is the direction that, for better or worse, things are going to be going into, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, and 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 I, I feel like, you know, uh, the, the model that Game Pass has, I've talked to game developers, they are happy with it. Gamers are happy with it. I'm not somebody who's necessarily like a huge fan of, of never owning stuff. I think if mm-hmm. I own it, I kind of think that's why for, to a certain extent Game Pass works because stuff does leave Game Pass. And so if you like it, you get a discount if you buy it. Um, but also sometimes, you know, there's just games you want to give a shot to and, and don't, Ever really necessarily want to want to buy again? I feel like that is going to be a model that works. I also feel like the the cloud gaming component becomes important, um, which obviously uh, Xbox is is pretty bullish about. Which in it to a certain extent, I mean, this is why last year I, th- I think that the chip shortage makes this a little bit different to try to kind of predict. But you know, last year a lot of people were writing think pieces about whether the the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, like whether these would be the last big console releases, because at a certain level you could see if because all the companies are investing in cloud gaming. And and if that becomes kind of the modus operandi, then the console that you're using itself doesn't become as important as whatever mm-hmm. service you're using uh, because you could potentially, you know, be playing from anything. You know, Stadia um, has that sort of thing. You know, GeForce, uh, NVIDIA has, has a service. There, there are a lot of those things. And so I think that kind of becomes the interesting thing to think about 20 years ago. Xbox was revolutionary because it was off-the-shelf PC hardware running games um, which was which seems simple now, like it seems like kind of obvious now, but that's not how consoles, as Breed mentioned earlier, were built before that. Um, and and introducing you know some of the PC aspects like online gaming to it, and now we're kind of going to this cloud way. So I don't know. I mean, I I personally hope we have consoles in twenty years, but it might just be apps on on our. VR headsets that we wear 24-7. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts, Brie? 
Yeah, can we talk about that original controller? Oh my god, Ooh, the big chunky. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It's the worst controller ever. So, so describe it to people if they've okay, never so, seen so it. Okay, so we'll have yeah. a link to to the photo in in the show notes. Um, gargantuan. So I have small hands anyway, but this thing, even if you have big hands, this is too big. And so imagine the original <laughs> Xbox controller, which. Interestingly, they then, a few months after the Xbox came out, they created the S version, which originally was only in Japan, and then they brought it everywhere, which that shape has maintained and is essentially the Xbox controller we know and love now. But imagine that, but about <laughs> twice as high. So it's about it's about twice as high and wider. So just imagine like the Dreamcast controller, but even bigger and like wider. And then you've got the, the dual you know joysticks going on. Oh, I've it, forgotten it, it, how truly bad this it, was. It was it's so terrible. bulbous. Yeah. yeah see, it, it's design decisions like that. You know, I have literally every single system, you know, Super Nintendo, GameCube, N64, yes. TurboGrafx-16, all of that. I have never owned an original Xbox. <gasps> oh, you're missing and- out. But like, like what? <laughs> no, you what? could hack them. No, no, genuinely. Oh, okay. We didn't even we didn't even talk about the mod scene. No, the mod scene on the original Xbox because it came with a hard drive mm-hmm. because you could do stuff. Like I modded my Xbox. I this first time I ever used a soldering iron was I I, I soldered something so that I could because I had a one version. They made it more difficult with with next version. You had to get like chips and stuff. I didn't have to do that so that you could basically run, you could basically like bypass the firmware and you could install games directly to the hard drive and you could pop out like the, the four gigabyte hard drive it came with or whatever size it was. I put in like a 40 gigabyte and I would download games. I would like rent games, borrow them, you know, from friends or whatever. And I would download the games directly to the hard drive. I'd also download retro games. I would download movies. I, this was in 2002. So I would literally like it, it was it was the future. So sorry, sorry for that tangent. But no, the no, Xbox no, it's good. was, was just... one of the most hackable best consoles. But you're right, the original controllers suck, but they did come out with an S type. Well, it's more like it like if you look back at like keeping the PlayStation 2, what are the reasons for keeping a PlayStation 2 around? Like games like Metal Gear, right? Right. Truly amazing original original titles i'm thinking about the games that were on that first xbox and yeah you had uh you, you had halo i've never been much of an fps uh, fps uh, fan what other truly great titles were there for that original xbox um well i mean i guess original titles other than halo i can't think of many although i would still say like simpsons hit and run is one of the best games ever mm-hmm. and and you cannot play that unfortunately what I always used to play actually was SSX Tricky. Oh, yeah. We, yeah, yeah so yeah. as you all know, I did not have an Xbox as a child. But when my dad would go out of town, we would sometimes rent one. And we the two games that I remember getting, man, it was a hard it was hard to choose. But Halo and SSX Tricky were the ones that we like would come back to over and over again. Um, so that's what I <laughs> would play on on yeah. the Xbox. Yeah, I guess there's Fable. Was good. There's yep. Fable. Fable. Um, uh, the sports oh, games. Oh, Chronicles of Riddick, the Butcher Bay game. I've never played that. Yeah, some of the sports games were good. Uh, like the Tony Hawk versions, I will have to say, like they did like remastered versions of a uh, one and two that were really good on the Xbox. Um, they also had like three and stuff. I mean, because the graphics were better than PS2. So. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know, like PS2 had had the Grand Theft Auto games, but those eventually came to Xbox. But yeah, mm-hmm. Halo was like was the game you bought it for. Um and and then some of the online play. Or if you were like me and and you wanted to hack it because and I can't stress this enough, like that was such a cool concept that you could, you know, you'd been able to like mod consoles before that certainly existed, mm-hmm. but nothing like the, like the Xbox, like a uh, Cody, um, which, uh, was previously XBMC started off on the Xbox. It was the Xbox media player. And then that became, you know, it, it was the basis of Plex originally started out as, as a fork of that. And, 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 uh, you know, like a lot of these, you know, ways that we manage our media and whatnot. Now it's funny to think about 20 years later, were direct ascendants from the Xbox because of the community that was built up around the the mod scene, which was just like massive. The Xbox 360 had a really big mod scene too, um, which uh, which is cool. So this has been our reflection on 20 years of Xbox, which makes me feel ancient. So let's talk about something new and hot and fresh. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Hmm. No, just kidding. It's NFTs and Quentin Tarantino. This is a weird little story. So Miramax is suing Quentin Tarantino uh, after Quentin Tarantino announced that he was planning to release Pulp Fiction related NFTs. So he was he announced he was going to release uh, seven NFTs based on Pulp Fiction that included uh, cuts from the early script uh, like scenes that were from an early script version, also art and commentary from him. And Miramax was like, that's our movie. And we're planning our own NFTs and you're taking money from us. Uh, so according to this Hollywood Reporter piece on it, uh, Tarantino's contract for Pulp Fiction with Miramax included a various rights, uh, including soundtrack, album, music publishing, live performance, print publication, including without limitation, screenplay publication, making of books, comic books, and novelization in audio and electronic formats, as well as applicable <laughs> interactive media, theatrical television, sequel and remake rights, and television series and spinoff rights. <gasps> and his attorney is saying that within his reserved rights, uh, because screenplay publication is in there, what they're doing is okay. Miramax's lawyers are saying no. Um, So outside of my burning, my complete convincement, which is not a word, that NFTs are in fact inherently worthless, uh, this raises a lot of interesting questions about like what about ownership and I guess the future of NFTs, like where do they fall within all of these reserved rights? Uh, This is a case that is going to determine what exactly that means for this new technology, this new form of, of, I will say, quote unquote, art that exists in the world now. I mean, that's pretty important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I I shared this. I thought it was just so fascinating because on the one hand, yeah, screw NFTs. On the other hand, this is a really interesting question about ownership. And then if you read the lawsuit, it's interesting because like Tarantino apparently had reserve had some reserved rights, which included the ability to publish the screenplay. But but Miramax is reading it as saying so so he was able to sell it in, in bookstores and stuff, which I'm pretty sure I bought when I was like 11. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I bought like the Pulp Fiction screenplay uh, because I was that child. And um, it's uh, 
so it's an interesting question, which is like, okay, so is this publishing? Is this not? I was talking to my friend Catherine about this, and she said that she kind of loves it, even though, you know, like she's like you and thinks that like NFTs are are some of like the worst things ever. Um, but she, you know, thinks this is really interesting because um it's one of those things where, like, on the one hand, you have people who are fighting saying, oh, well, um, you know, doing this is is devaluing it or whatever because it's a form of publishing. And then you have another uh, form that is saying, you know, like th- this. So this is what she said. The side hoping to make money on the NFT sale has to claim it's publishing parts of the script. And the side hoping to block it is claiming it's a one-of-a-kind item and therefore not published. <laughs> so it's, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, where does, where does art go with this? And, like, it's his handwriting. I don't know. I, I think it's fascinating. What's interesting to me, like, on top of that also is with – like with NFTs, what I understand part of the attraction is, is like you own that thing now. If it's right. a script written by Tarantino, like w- when you buy a book, you don't own War and Peace, the words written by Tolstoy. You own a book that was published containing those words. So with an NFT, I'm very curious, like that that is the question, like do you, are those then your words that you can republish because if I mean, you I own an you NFT, like, you can reprint that art on whatever the heck you want. Right. I mean, I think you can reprint like that art, like like that image. But like, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> These are the questions. So I, if I owned a, a scene, let's say I owned a scene of Pulp Fiction as an NFT, I that like a presumed a screenshot of the script or something, I could reprint that screenshot of the Pulp Fiction script on T-shirts and sell it. I think so. I think if you owned it, I think you could. Yeah. Fascinating. That's what this kind of feels like, right? I don't know if y'all watched the video of him announcing this at, uh, it's like NFT world or something like that. Like it's bizarre to see Quentin Tarantino standing up at an NFT event and announcing this, but it was a really interesting story about, uh, basically making the first Pulp Fiction, uh, script, which I've never seen and putting new scenes in there and how the only person that had ever seen the, this was the person that typed his handwritten <laughs> script and then it sat on a a shelf in his uh, home office for years and years and years. And to me, that kind of, that analogy makes this, it's more similar to like, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy with the bloody sock, uh, the crazy uh, transphobic uh, uh, monster uh, uh, here. Kurt, Kurt Schilling. Yeah, Kurt Schilling. Kurt Schilling here in Boston. You know, he ended up selling that to cover his 37 studios uh, debt. So it just, it seems, I, I mean, A, Miramax, let's just be honest, that that's the Harvey Weinstein company. Yes. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't be getting in big public fights. Maybe you're not the best person to adjudicate this because automatically I'm like, F you. Uh, but, you know, like, it, it really feels like they're trying to muscle in on something that's like it's a piece of memorabilia from the director you know yeah i was gonna say like like these were not filmed this was not something that like he didn't give over all of his rights his memories and whatnot like if he'd had the screen pages like i i think that's how i think about this like if he tried to sell like the pages themselves to christie's or something like his Mm -hmm. first draft with his notes the studio i don't think i I would have i'm not a lawyer but i think I, i it would be odd to me if the studio then reached in and said, no, actually, we own 
every version of anything, e- even this printed copy that, that that is ostensibly like like your notes mm-hmm. and, and your stuff. We own this. Like that would feel weird, right? Yeah, like, for sure. So so you know, to me, I, I'm with you. Like this, if anything. I have to say, and I am a huge Tarantino fan, but and I certainly would would not be buying a Tarantino NFT. But I do have to say, like at least the way that this was kind of described, like this is the first sort of NFT I've seen where I'm like, okay, actually, this does seem more like memorabilia and more of a one of a kind type of thing versus the the BS that you usually have have seen. You know, people attempt to do that with, which from an artistic perspective, I do find at least more interesting. But what's funny is if you go through the lawsuit, Miramax, which at the time um, that the, you know, the film came out was owned by Disney and then Disney sold it in 2010. And then it's had like three different owners since then. And it's basically. Love Disney movie Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, seriously. It, it, all of the Miramax films of the 90s, which were, you know, very not Disney friendly, made Disney a ton of money. Um, but then they, they sold the studio and the studio wasn't profitable anymore. And then, you know, it's had other ownership at this point, because the name is so toxic, as Pre said, like it essentially just exists to like mine the IP of its previous films <laughs> and which, which is disgusting, right? You're just, you're like, it's, it's this shell company. It's like this, this patent troll who's, who's suing the actual artist. But it, what's hilarious is that in the actual filing, they have all these screenshots of all this terrible stuff that they've sold with like the uh, about pulp fiction like like funko pops and like weird like like types of soaps and and just really bizarre stuff and i'm like okay i don't know if this necessarily helps your case mm-hmm. i mean it might legally but but i'm just at least in the court of public opinion I don't know if seeing the fact that there's been pulp fiction makeup really makes me feel like oh yes um, this is really about integrity yeah. of, of the artwork. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh, goodness. So as you said, Christina, if they settle, this will be a womp. But it is potentially interesting if this goes to court. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's got money, right? He can hire lawyers. Oh, yeah. I'm sure the NFT people who are paying him to do this, because, like, let's be clear, somebody paid him a whole bunch of money to do this to begin yeah, with. Yeah, fair enough. I'm sure, that they, I'm sure that they are the ones who will be like, yes, we will take our, our alleged money laundering millions <sighs> and, and, and spend that on the lawsuit. But, I mean, I, I kind of hope it does go to court because I feel like this is a really interesting case that will have to be decided at some point because it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Can, can, before we jump off, can we... Yeah. I, can we talk about how Hollywood gang in the NFT game is, it just makes me despair for the future of humanity. Ghostbusters <sighs> Afterlife is doing this. Like, uh, they're, they're Why selling... are we surprised? I, I'm not surprised, and I didn't expect more. I guess I just didn't think through it <laughs> that they would do this. And it's it's just so gross. And as people were pointing out today <laughs> with the very first Ghostbusters movie, you know who the, the villain was in that? The EPA? Saying <laughs> yes! that the Ghostbusters were dangerous yes. to the environment? Which, and I mean, fair. Are. There we go. Well, I mean, uh, it it is fascinating, <laughs> and I, I also find it gross. But it's it it kind of for me just underlines how hollow this industry feels to me. That there yes. are all these like, oh, let's rush in and make something uh, because there is money here, and people are just throwing money around willy nilly. It, it it feels like an oil rush, to be honest. Um, so 
Hollywood will always go where the the money is, or the mainstream movie industry will go where the money is. Um, it yeah, it 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 looks gross, it feels gross, um, and I think it is contributing to uh, probably the unsustainability of the whole this whole corner of of tech hobbyism right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it 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 yeah, it's it's gross as as all get out and and it's I yeah, it, I'm so cynical about all of it, but I think just seeing I don't know when I even my cynicism thing, I, I I was like, oh, this is an interesting question. But my before I read the legal issues, when I just saw like the headline come across my feed, like the amount of eye rolls I had, I was just yeah. like, I I cannot believe that this is a real thing. That like, especially since the lawsuit, like Miramax was planning its own NFT auction uh, on, on <laughs> sure Pulp Fiction. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, can can I just have my favorite movie stay in my favorite movie? Right? Like, can some of my childhood memories of of being um, an 11 year old and sneaking into that theater like be kept sacred please yeah the answer is no no okay <laughs> i'm sorry Christina. well aside from that christina what are you doing this week i am getting uh my third uh dose of the vaccine getting my booster shot about to do that right now literally as soon as we get off the pod so that's what i'm doing and then um i'm um still figuring out and i've waited way too long at this point so i'm going to be paying through the ass but i'm going to be going to atlanta next week for thanksgiving nice. so um oh and uh my youtube show is coming back so it is Yay. now called it's now called The Download with Christina Warren. The first episode will premiere on Friday. So nice. uh, look to my Twitter for that. But yes. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank that's you. awesome. Brianna, what about you? Uh, so Simone asked me why I had five hours of sleep last night. Brianna, why did you have five hours of sleep last night? Because I was coming back from Maine <gasps> getting Frank's Christmas present. <gasps> I did not expect it to get in what? this early. Um, so a while back, Stern announced something. They said, uh, the day I got my TMNT pinball table, the next day they announced that Godzilla oh. was coming out. Oh, wow. If you know anything about my husband, you know he is obsessed with Godzilla movies. He actually made a short <laughs> I love Frank, but he made a short movie about a giant space chicken. <laughs> That's how much he loves giant monster movies. So wow. I saw this table come out and I'm like, that is the most Frank Wu thing I've ever seen. Yes. And I put down a deposit on it, uh, expecting it would take like a really long time to come out because I just bought that TMNT table. I'd never like put in a pre-order for a for a pinball machine before. So I right. get this call while I'm in Florida last week going, come on, get back up here. Give us the money for this. So, And you're like, I'm sorry, what? I, Right. I'm trying to relax. Like, in let Florida. me live. <laughs> so I had driven 20 hours down to Florida and then I had to cut it a couple of days short to drive 20 hours back to Maine to then come back down to Massachusetts and with this giant table. And like these things are huge. They're 300 pounds. Like you're renting a truck and unloading it and you have to have specialized equipment to lift it up and put all the legs on it. So all that is to say, this was a ton of work, but I am telling you guys, I have played a lot of pinball machines in my life. This is like, it has amazing reviews on Pinside. 
Everyone is saying it's one of the best games ever made. Now that I've played the frack out of it, it is just amazing. It is amazing. It is the best pinball table ever. So uh, I only have one more day this week before I have surgery and I will be on Oxycontin, which will probably affect my pinball playing skills. Uh, But uh, before then, uh, I will be playing Godzilla. Excellent. I think out of all of us, you might be having the best week. I think so. Yes. I think so. You win this segment. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting a video ready for publication uh, on Thursday. I guess I shouldn't say it'll happen on Thursday for sure, because there's a couple pieces being moved around. It'll either be this one or another one. Um, But I have a video going up about Notre Dame in Assassin's Creed Unity. You know... It's been described as the most Simone video ever. <laughs> Sounds Coming like from it. from my coworkers. Uh, taking the chance to talk about um, architecture and the creation of Notre Dame and Assassin's Creed Unity, basically based on m- seeing a bunch of people report about how Unity could potentially like the, the the 3d models of unity of, of notre dame and unity could be used to help rebuild notre dame which was a story that went around when notre dame first caught fire in 2019 um and i had initially like seen that headline and thought that as well until um we were doing some other stories about architecture and i was like oh let me see if that's still happening and i was like oh no it's not happening at all like ubisoft never said that they were like We'll give whatever help we can. And if they want the art, (laughs) we'll give it to them. Uh, But no, we don't have plans to like rebuild Notre Dame with our 3D models. Um, So my video is kind of looking into the reasons why that is, because the, the cathedral in Unity is beautiful. It is incredible. It is detailed. It is gorgeous. It is atmospheric. But it is uh, it is compromised in when in many ways because it is a video game, and that's okay because it's for the best to make that video game like fun and good, um, which in my opinion Unity is. Anyway, so that's what that's about. Uh, I'll talk more about that maybe when it comes out. But other so I'm just working on that really uh, and enjoying. This little cold Whatever snap. brings you closer to the Lord's light. <laughs> Christina and I are both fans of. We Listen, are, somebody's got to get me in church. <laughs> <laughs> if it has to be Assassin's Creed, so be it. I was going to say, look, if there was one way that was going to happen, we all know it was going to be Assassin's Creed because you do worship at the altar of Assassin's Creed. I unfortunately do. Um, okay. Hey, Christina, where can we find you online? You can find me at film underscore girl on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find my videos for work at youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. And Brianna? Uh, you can see me on uh, Brianna Will on Twitter. Ooh, you can find me at youtube.com slash polygon or on Twitter and Instagram at Doom Quasar. And you can review this show on Apple Podcasts. And that helps other people find the show as well and enjoy it and learn all about what we think about Quentin Tarantino and (laughs) Xbox and unions. It's a good time for everybody. Please give us your five stars. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rocket. This episode, in particular, is terminated. 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 Terminated.